health is always about long term. It's not about how you feel the next day. It's about how you'll feel next year and the year after that and the year after that. Hello, everyone, and welcome or welcome back to Mom Light, the podcast dedicated to helping you mothers feel your best in body, mind, and spirit, despite the real challenges of mom life. I'm your host, Kanchan Koya, a molecular biology PhD turned health and wellness warrior and super duper believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Also known as Chief Spice Mama on the Gram, founder of Spice Spice Baby and now Mom Light, basically doing way too many things, but loving every minute. So grateful for it all and so grateful for you guys. If you have left a review and rating on iTunes for the show, I am so grateful. It really helps the show reach more people. And if you could do so, if you haven't done so already, I would appreciate it hugely. My goal through the show is really to bring on guests who are thought leaders, who are wise, who have had their own share of struggles and who are impacting the world either through their own experience or through their domain knowledge to really help us find that elusive vitality that is going to allow us to show up as the best version of ourselves as moms and essentially change the world. (laughs) So anyways, so excited to be here today because I have a very special guest on the show. But before I jump into her wonderful, amazing, inspiring background, I just want to let you know about a couple of really fun programs that I have launched. So the first one is in response to many people asking me about doing a cooking class. And because I live in New York City and I do do these cooking classes and workshops now and then, it just dawned on me, why not use the power of technology and the digital age that we live in to help more people bring the magic of spices and food as medicine and deliciousness into their kitchen. So I've launched my first ever online, which means you can do it anywhere in the world cooking class series. It's a monthly cooking class. It's $9.99 a month. It will be an ultra deep dive into a particular area of health that I will focus on each month. So in November, we are kicking off on Monday, November 18th, and it's going to be a topic focused on inflammation. That's just a few days from now. We're going to talk about the science of inflammation, why chronic low-grade inflammation contributes to disease and aging, and how we can combat it using food and lifestyle as medicine. But we're not going to stop at the science. We're going to actually cook. And you're going to walk away with knowledge that you may not have had already about how certain things you're doing or eating or thinking are impacting your inflammatory kind of load and how you can cook your way out of it and have a delicious meal in the process. The recipes will be with you for life. If you miss the recording and you can't make the live class, which will be held on Zoom, you will receive a video of the recording, which you also get to keep for life. So I really feel like it's going to be amazing. It's going to be, I'm going to pour my heart and soul into it. And just given the workshops that I've done and the feedback that I received, I know you guys are going to love it. So would love to see you there and hang with you in this kind of dedicated way. Super, super excited. And if you are not sure you want to commit to the entire series, you have to commit to the class, come on. (laughs) But if you feel like you can't commit to the entire series or you're not sure, you know, if you'll remember to cancel your subscription, if you can't make it, all that. I'm also offering an a la carte option where you can just sign up for one class at a time. So there's two different links in the show notes. Also on my bio on Instagram, if you want to sign up and I'll be mentioning it in my stories. So stay tuned for that. And I would love to see you guys there. 
And then the second announcement is about my mom light transformation bootcamp. We're closing the first class this week. It has been a wild ride. I have just been blown away by the way my moms in the group have been showing up for themselves and doing the work and uplifting others as part of the group. And it's just been so amazing. I'm definitely offering it again. I know some of you have expressed interest. I've decided to launch the second class of the bootcamp actually in the first week of December instead of next week because of Thanksgiving and everybody feeling a little bit stressed about getting on any kind of plan for the holidays. But I will just say this, um, this is really the anti-plan plan. So the problem I find with most diets and exercise routines and regimens and programs is that you're either on the plan or you're off the plan. And I wanted to create an eight-step approach where you can always be on the plan, even on Thanksgiving, even on Christmas, even on New Year's Eve, even at McDonald's. Seriously. I mean, don't go to McDonald's, but you know what I mean? It's really about a lifestyle. It's an approach. There is room there for just living and doing whatever. There's room there predominantly to nourish yourself and live a life of delicious, abundant health. There's lots of science. It's evidence-based. It's hugely impactful. People on the program have commented and given me feedback that they've never felt this good. They've lost weight in an effortless way without trying to lose weight. The focus is really just to find that elusive vitality. And if I can help you do that, it would be such an honor. So if you're interested in the bootcamp, email me or direct message me on Instagram and I can share more information. All right. Thank you for being patient through that intro. Now we are jumping into today's guest. Like I said, I'm so stoked to have on the show today a very special guest, actually someone that I've been following in the health and wellness space since I want to say 2000 and. 13, 14. I was living in Hong Kong at the time and I was like, just finished my um, training at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And I was very much interested in other people who were helping inspire others to live their healthiest, most vibrant life. And I came across Madeline Shaw. She is based in the UK and she had the most beautiful website, the most incredible mouth-watering recipes. I loved her philosophy that went deeper than just what's on your plate. And I started following her. And she's written tons of books now. She's like ultra famous, definitely in the UK, if not everywhere. She has digital programs. She's just a really beautiful spokesperson for this kind of outer beauty is inner beauty and inner wellness and nourishing yourself and being kind to yourself, but also tangible recipes and other kinds of programs. Anyway, I emailed her out of the blue. This is a message for anyone out there who wants to talk to someone or wants to connect with someone and is afraid. And I just emailed her. And you know, before you say, oh yeah, but now you're like Insta-famous. No, no. <laughs> I've emailed people when I was an Insta-famous and they have been kind enough to write me back. And I've also not heard back from people. But the idea is if you really want to talk to someone or bring someone on your podcast or collaborate with someone, just send them an email. You never know. So Madeline or Maddie wrote back. I actually was on her podcast last week and she was on mine today. And you guys are so lucky because you're going to hear her drop her wisdom, share her light, share her superpower, which is really her superpower, and specifically talk about her journey with IBS and how she has now created a program. I have to say that sounds pretty revolutionary in collaboration with the clinical dietitian. 
And it sounds incredible. I highly recommend it. All the links and the show notes. Um, it's madelineshaw.com and you can find her program there and all the other links will be in the show notes. So let's talk about Madeline. So Madeline has become famous for her Get the Glow philosophy, which was definitely something that attracted me to her because she's really about a deeper health and wellness. And her philosophy is really about enjoying what makes you feel happy and healthy. She likes to think of health about being more than what you eat and how much you exercise. Love it. She calls her three pillars, move, munch, and meditate. In her book, meditation doesn't have to involve owing. It could be mindful coloring or maybe even a walk. I love how practical that is. The important thing is to make time to relax, to balance out all the go, go, go in our lives. I mean, couldn't agree more. Madeline wasn't always this healthy and she'll jump into that in the show. In fact, as a teenager, she ate really badly and was constantly on a diet. Her skin was dull, hair was lank, and she constantly complained of being tired. I know many of us can relate to that. Unsurprisingly, living off diet, cola, and low-calorie ready meals meant she developed terrible digestive problems, bloating, cramps, and all sorts of other goodness, not... Gradually, she realized she had to change her destructive ways. She learned to cook, started eating whole foods, found she was gradually falling in love with food, life, and most importantly, with herself. Her taste buds bloomed. I love that. Um, it's so true. The 4 p.m. energy slump was eliminated. Her skin began to glow. Calorie counting went out the window. Hashtag yes. And she beamed from year to year. She really does. If you check out MadelineShaw.com, you will see her beaming in every photo. And I have no doubt it's a genuine smile. And she really says all that came from giving her body what it needed. It was such a good feeling. She studied nutrition, coaching people who wanted to eat well, and started creating her own glow-getting recipes. She started this website, her website, to share her passion for delicious and nutritious food with the world. And we are so lucky to have her light, to have her presence, because it is truly contagious. She wants to show the world how easy it is to eat good food, to stretch out, and to make time to relax in tangible, practical ways. This isn't about a diet. It's about getting the glow as a way of life. She loves to see pictures of people's recipes, recreations, and find out how they're learning to glow from the inside out. So she loves for you to stay in touch on Instagram and through her website. I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Madeline, Maddie, welcome to Mom Light. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I love when I cold email people that I've been stalking for years and they actually <laughs> respond. So thank you so much for responding. And um, so fun that we get to be on each other's podcasts and we're both moms and both passionate about health and food and lifestyle to help people just really find that vitality. So I'm super stoked to have you on the show. How has your day been? You're in London, correct? Yes. So it's the afternoon here in London. It's not quite dark yet. However, it does get quite dark early at the moment. So I've actually had a really nice day. This isn't usual, but I had the morning off and I had a facial um, and then I had a meeting and then I recorded a podcast with another guest about perfectionism in motherhood. And now I'm chatting to you. So it's been a kind of leisurely and also uh, efficient day. Sounds like a dream. Yeah, especially the facial part. 
Um, love it. So you are super well known for your get the glow, get your glow back philosophy, mission work um, with tons of followers and just a huge fan base. But it sounds like you didn't always have the glow, <laughs> whatever that means. So tell us a little bit about your journey to the work that you're doing and to your own glow. How did it all start? Was it always glowy and rosy? No, it probably wasn't. Um, I would say the kind of tipping point for me was my move to Australia. So I am, I was brought up in London, but my parents are from New Zealand. And I've always kind of been obsessed with Australian Kiwis, that sort of part of the world and ended up going to university there when I was 18 and fell in love with it. Um, loved the lifestyle, loved the beach, loved the Aussie accent. And when I was over there, I had really bad IBS, digestive problems. And I was trying to figure out you know, how to manage it because IBS isn't a disease where you kind of have it and it gets cured. It's a syndrome. So it's all about you know, management and lifestyle and diet. And I went to see a naturopath and she was like, you really need to change what you're eating. And I had kind of gone by, you know, the magazines in the UK, which told me to drink diet drinks and eat diet yogurt and, you know, diet meals. And, you know, it was about deprivation when it came to being healthy. And she completely changed my mindset on what healthy was and helped me with my relationship with food, which probably was a bit damaged. And it really changed my life. And I ended up eating at an organic cafe so much they gave me a job there. And I ended up working there and just fell in love with food and nutrition and health. And ever since, I can't even remember the age of 14, I just didn't know what I was going to be in life. And both my parents had careers they loved. You know, they woke up every morning and they loved going to work. And I really wanted that in my life, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And I tried every different job under the sun from interning at investment banks to dog walking. And when I started cooking and learning about food and the, you know, what, impact that food can have and different lifestyle changes can have on your health and well-being i just was thought it was the most amazing thing in the world and i wanted to spread this message because i felt like especially in the uk maybe less in australia at the time you know it was all about dieting and deprivation and punishment and i thought actually no it needs to be reframed as enjoyment and lifestyle and looking after yourself every day not just you know, six weeks before you go on holiday. So I moved back and started up my blog and I never expected it to kind of form in the way it has because it wasn't really a career at that time. This is over seven years ago. And I just started putting out different recipes and I hustled in my area, you know, cooking for people, doing supper clubs and events. And a lot of the time people said to me, you know, you look really great, you're glowing. And I thought, wow, that's such a lovely phrase. Instead of get thin or get, you know, ripped or whatever, I thought glow was such a all-encompassing word of wellness. You know, when you're sleeping well, when you're eating well, when you're kind to yourself, you glow because you're feeling good internally and that kind of comes up externally. So I really 
latched onto that phrase and I started doing uh, get the glow workshops around London where I would spiralize courgettes. And at that time, we're talking over seven years ago, it was quite revolutionary. <laughs> and people would go, whoa, and, you know, make cauliflower rice. And that was also really cool. And <laughs> it's right, now it's in the frozen section, yeah. like every grocery store. <laughs> you know, now you can buy it, you know, very easily. And it was a really, and still is, a very exciting time for health. And that was kind of the beginning of it. And I guess I've kept that word glow in different ways. Yeah, my first book was Get the Glow. My second book was Ready, Steady, Glow. I've got a podcast called Get Your Glow Back because I still love it. And I still think it really does summarize what health means to me. And it's, I think, something that people often want. So it hopefully entices people to, you know, take action and and look after themselves. Yeah. Wow. So much um, wisdom there, so much to unpack there. And I was kind of feeling all glowy just listening to you describe, you know, the elements that really are so pivotal for health and that glow aside from the food on your plate, like loving yourself, being kind to yourself and can be so hard for us moms. Um, And I love that you did a podcast today on perfectionism because I really feel like those are all so involved in the glow or not having it, you know. So a couple of questions there. You talk about this pivotal point when you're in Australia where you meet this naturopathic doctor. And I just wanted to dive in there a little bit because I feel like sometimes people want to make a change to how they're eating, how they're living. And they, you know, there's one way, which is, okay, I'm just going to overhaul everything overnight. And then there's a more gradual approach. In your case, was it kind of really... um, sort of an intense transformation very quickly or was it more ga- gradual? And what do you recommend really for people who are looking to make that transformation? Do you know what? It was quite gradual. Um, I think that that is quite key. It, it depends what kind of personality you are. I think often type A personalities love the overhaul and straight in, you know, get the golden star or whatever. But for me, it's got to be about lifestyle long-term and that it works and it's not about failure. And I think a lot of the time, if we do something that isn't long lasting, we can often lead ourselves into failure. Then we don't feel good enough. Then we beat ourselves up. And, and that's obviously not the point of it. So I think of it, you know, small changes like firstly changing your breakfast, um, uh, you know, changing what you eat for lunch, you know, do you really need that snack or not? You know, what kind of drinks are you having throughout the day? I think those are really good places to start. And um, I think it's, Health is always about long term. It's not about how you feel the next day. It's about how you'll feel next year and the year after that and the year after that. So in my opinion, gradual works the best, but you've also got to tune into yourself and figure out what's right for you and your circumstances and you know what's going on for you in that moment. But I think gradual is, is the good way to go. Yeah, I love that you said health is about how you're feeling next year, not, you know, in six weeks or next week, because it's whatever, like New Year's Eve. Um, And just really moving the focus from that short term physical kind of outcome to just something so much deeper. And then I think the gradual changes really feel like they are stacking up, even if it's slow you know? So that's amazing. And I love that you said, you know, your parents were so passionate about their work and that trickles down, doesn't it? Like the fact that you're doing this now 
as your work and you're so, so in love with it and passionate about it, I think is not a coincidence. And as moms, I think if we can model that, if we're lucky enough to be doing things we genuinely love and we can model that for our kids, I think it's really such a great gift. A hundred percent. No, I, I mean, I have a lot of great things that my parents have passed on to me. Um, work. They've also always kind of allowed me to focus on the things I'm good at rather than the things I'm not. I have a psychiatrist as a father. So, <laughs> you know, oh, I've wow. <laughs> my feelings and allowed my feelings to be validated and allowed to feel the way I feel and be able to have space to talk about it. So I feel very blessed to have fantastic parents. Yeah. Amazing. So back to the IBS, because gosh, is there a more um, kind of common problem that seems to be a challenge for so many today? And I know you have this incredible program that's focused on IBS relief. So how did the transformation that you underwent in Australia help you with your journey um, on, on the IBS kind of syndrome spectrum? And are there any you know, specific tips or any kind of specifics that really worked for you? And then obviously would love for you to share more about the program with my listeners, because I know a lot of them have this challenge. Absolutely. So yeah, when I was diagnosed, it was confusing and it's really hard to know. And I, I think there are lots of great things out there that do help, but we're all bio-individuals. So we have to kind of figure out what's right for us. And often we have to be detectives. So firstly, um, what I ate was important. So reducing the kind of sugary, especially the um, kind of alcohol sugars, they are often quite triggering for IBS. Mm. And lots of yeah, sugary, but also sweeteners and things like that were in food. So really getting back to eating food from scratch, cooking, eating whole foods, that was a big thing. Another thing was how we eat. And that's almost just as important as what we eat. So sitting down, chewing your food, trying not to eat, grab and go while you're walking down the road, really taking time to chew your food 15 times because, you know, digestion starts firstly in the mind. I'm going to eat something, let's get ready. Then in the mouth, chewing it down, you know, producing those enzymes in the mouth that help it break down. And I think often we're you know, eating while we're tweeting and we're eating at our desks at work every day and we wolf it down to get back to work. And I think that we really need to be in a state of relaxation while we eat. That's how we digest our food well. And that's a huge thing for IBS, actually the number one, like if anyone was going to start thinking about how to manage that IBS, the way you eat, chewing your food in a calm, relaxed way, I'd say if you did that for 10 days straight, you would notice it might even be on the first day dramatic results and it's one of the hardest ones to change as well because it's quite easy to be like eat this diet or take this magic pill but changing your habits around food takes work because you've probably spent many 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 times not doing that and you've trained your brain to do it and you think it's efficient and efficiency is rewarded in this day and age but actually it's inefficient because then you'll feel sluggish, you'll feel bloated, you might take days off work because you're in pain. So you really need to respect that actually taking that 20 minutes for lunch will make you a better person. Um, what other things? Stress is one of 
you know, maybe the second biggest thing. Um, we all know that there is a connection between our brain and our gut. And we've known that from when we feel embarrassed or shy or nervous or worried, we will feel it in our stomach in some way, shape or form. And I think that we're sometimes unaware of it. You know, we think we've got digestive problems. So we take this pill, we do this thing, but actually the underlying cause might be that it's just stress. And unless you meet that head on, it will continue to manifest. So stress is part of life and there's no magic way of getting rid of it, but we can start to figure out potentially our toolkit. So, you know, for me, my toolkit is nature, it's meditation, it's boundaries with work. So not working late, it's having time off, you know, whatever it is that kind of makes you feel de-stressed. And there are so many different ways. And I think there's no right way of doing it. You know, it might be rock climbing, it might be dancing, it might be, you know, just having a cup of tea with a friend and having a chat, but whatever the things you can do that make you feel calm, just do them and, you know, look in your diary and put each of those things in your diary and make sure they're scheduled and planned for because they are so important because stress is the biggest cause of disease, not only IBS, but lots of other conditions. And I think it is really important that we're really aware of it, aware of our triggers, aware of how to reduce it and aware of how we can manage it. So I could probably go on and on about different... Oh, I've heard so many people... Well, everyone talks about IBS relief and they talk about FODMAPs Mm -hmm. and they talk about elimination diets and intolerances (laughs) and inflammation in the gut. I've never heard that what you said so beautifully and poignantly, which is digestion begins in the mind. I've heard people say digestion begins in the mouth, which we know, you know, because of all the enzymes, but we really are a system. We're not sort of isolated parts. Our brain and body is intimately connected. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I bet it makes an impact. You know, um, Dan Buettner is the author who studies the blue zones and he talks about this commonality across all the blue zones where people live till like a hundred and whatever. And they all sit down together and they eat slowly. That can't be a coincidence. It can't be right that we sort of eat at our desks, eat in the car, eat while we tweet. So I just love that you brought that up because I don't think it's talked about enough in the context of something like IBS. No, absolutely. And look, we do go on to the FODMAPs. We go on to the specifics of, you know, potentially, is it the dairy? Is it, you know, um, the wheat that's triggering it? Like, is it the onions and garlic? You know, we go into it because it's designed by me and also a clinical dietitian who specializes in IBS. Oh, amazing. So yeah, it's a 12-week program, but it's self-management. So it might take you longer. It might take you less time because you feel so amazing after four weeks that you've nailed it. And we go into those specifics, but we do really address the lifestyle things. and, And we always put the emphasis on the importance of them. Because I think there's a lot of kind of control around things. And I think diet is often something that we feel like we can control and we go straight into it because it's like, this is right and this is wrong. But lifestyle sometimes is a bit triggering for people, but actually it can be the more powerful tool. And, you know, the missing link, 
of it. So yeah, it's a really cool program. We've got like a private Facebook group because community is super important and, you know, have support from other people who are also going through it because it can be quite isolating. And, you know, some people's IBS completely controls their life where they can't get out of bed sometimes and it's crippling. And to feel validated and not alone, I think is really important. Yeah, sounds like an incredible resource. And I will put the info in the show notes, but where's the best place where people can find it, learn about it and sign up? Happygutguide.co.uk. Love it. Okay, amazing. Um, So now let's talk a little bit about your transition to becoming a mom. You're a mom of, how old is your little one now? Uh, He is two. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So what was that like? You went from being this get your glow kind of guru with all these books and, you know, all this amazing stuff. Did things change when you became a mother? Was it hard? Um, Tell us about that transition. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I had a lot of sort of emotion around becoming a mom because back when I was you know, in Australia and, you know, looking after my IBS and getting interested in health and well-being, I also lost my period. And I came off the pill. I'd just broken up with a long-term boyfriend and was kind of like, oh, I've been on the pill since I was 14. Why am I on it? And, you know, I was starting to learn about, you know, kind of just becoming more conscious about what was going in me. You know, I'd never really sort of thought about it before. And I didn't get my period for two years after that. And I think I saw a lot of specialists and they were like, you've got PCOS, you know, you've got this. And I think it brought up a lot of fear for me because obviously, you know, we know that if you don't have a period, it's quite unlikely or it's, it's less easy to get pregnant. So I think I had a lot of kind of fear in the background and then eventually through lots of different things connecting to my femininity really helped um, because I think I was like quite masculine and go, 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 but actually allowing that femininity to encompass my life and through acupuncture and reducing stress, um, eventually my periods came back and were regular. So I think there was a little bit of fear for me, like, will I get pregnant? Will I not? And I did get pregnant but sadly, I, the first time I got pregnant, I I lost the baby at 12 weeks. I miscarried. and I'm so was- sorry. It's happened to me. And it's, yeah, so not easy. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was a very difficult time at the time. And, and you know, I was very lucky not too long after um, to fall pregnant again. So I think I went in with pregnancy, obviously excited, but there was a slight fear around it having lost um my first baby and you know feeling that sense of fear which I think probably a lot of mums have because you suddenly are in charge of this new human that you love so much but um I had a pretty good pregnancy I was um quite sick at the beginning I was throwing up every day and often it was in quite a lot of public places from taxi (laughs) (laughs) who once vomited into my lunch in a restaurant Wow, you know what they say, it means like you're really pregnant, everything's on track. (laughs) That's what they used to tell me. That was the one thing that got me through. I was like, this feels really different. You know, I wasn't sick in my first pregnancy. So I was like, as much as it was horrible every day, I was like, it's going well. 
and um, it's you know the hormones are in, they are kicking in, <laughs> right? Um, and then after the kind of that's subsided, I had a wonderful pregnancy actually. I really enjoyed being pregnant and. I felt really good and I really enjoyed my body changing and I liked having a bump and I also had a really good birth and I feel like I really transitioned into motherhood quite easily. I don't know. I felt, it just felt right for me and I think that I had a really good childhood and I think I had really loving parents and I think that obviously helped me a lot because they had showed me unconditional love and I think that made it easy for me to show unconditional love to my son Mm -hmm. um he had quite bad reflux at the beginning which was difficult and I feel for all mothers who have children with reflux and everyone told me it was a phase and it will pass and in the moment you don't feel like it is but it did so that was great and yeah, I think that I just connected really well with my son and I felt really at ease with it. Because I worked for myself, I had to get back to work quite quickly, or at least I did put pressure on myself too, which was good and bad. I think it was fantastic because mentally I got a sort of break from it. So it didn't feel too overwhelming. So I could almost switch into a different role and, you know, almost feel connected to my identity before but then it was difficult because I felt like I was missing out on the toddler meetups and you know the mum whatsapp group that I was in I just couldn't ever make those play dates all the time because they were at times that I was working so I think I had to really dig deep and figure out what kind of mum I wanted to be and surround myself with other mothers who whether they were working or not I identified with and I felt like I could have great conversations with. So that was something that I sort of set myself up to and really found a handful of amazing women. And it was really, I found it really refreshing to make new friends because as a born and bred Londoner, even though I moved away to Australia and obviously made new friends there, I've always kind of stayed in the same place and had my friends since I was, you know, a very young girl around me. So it was really fun to meet new interesting people um so I have really enjoyed that part of it and yeah I totally agree it's it is your world expands and it's really it's really amazing to embrace that change so it sounds like a really beautiful transition did you struggle with lack of sleep issues how did you cope with that I know (laughs) older kids are still struggling because every kid is different but yeah how is that for you Do you know what? Sleep was something that I was really determined to um, get in a good place. I think because I had the pressure of going back to work quickly. So I knew I had to. And I'm not saying that if you say get a year of maternity leave that you're not going to want that either. But I almost had a little bit more pressure to facilitate that. So um, I sleep trained my son in a way that felt really right for me. It wasn't a kind of crying out way. It was called, um, she's called the baby whisperer. I really recommend it. Yes. Yes. I know how I've read the books. Yeah. So like it really, it's a gentler kind of training. Yeah. You know, it really worked for us. And I know a lot of mums are going to hate me for saying this, but my son slept through from 10 weeks old. I know. Oh my gosh, they might. (laughs) 
I am so sorry. And I, I think I did strike gold on that. And it was probably a mixture of technique, but also I just think certain babies are built um, in certain ways. But I'm actually now, age two, going through a difficult sleep phase. So I think it comes around at different times. So my son is going through a real attachment phase where I put him down to sleep and he just can't bear the fact that I'm walking out the room and he just wants to sleep in a bed with me. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really difficult. And I've kind of been letting him sleep with me in a bed, but I'm also conscious of the fact that both of us aren't sleeping as well as we would, you know, when he's in his room by himself, because we're kind of not just dis- as disturbed. So I can't say I've got the answer to it at the right. moment. I've been told by friends to buy a mummy pillow, so a pillow with your face on that they can kind of hug at night when they miss you. Um, I've ordered it. It hasn't arrived. So (laughs) So you can't see. (laughs) I've never heard of that. My goodness, that's a good one. But yeah, you know, I think there's so many different phases, aren't there? And I think the minute you think, you know, I thought I'd nailed sleep and you think you've nailed this and your child evolves and it grows. And I think I'm just constantly having to have compassion and love for myself and for my son and and try and allow him to feel what he feels rather than tell him not to feel how he feels. Because at the end of the day, that he feels like he needs me more and I I have to kind of surrender to it, even though part of me is like fighting it as well. Yeah, no, I love that point about compassion. I mean, I think most mothers are in some sort of a sleep debt, right? Because they say you can't really make up for lost sleep. I will say though, that things that really help me are even short meditation practices, lots of deep breathing just to calm that sort of cortisol response. That's a little bit in overdrive because of lack of sleep. And I would also say that, you know, we moms, if we value the sleep, then we're going to have to make changes to compensate for some of these sleep deficits, which are out of our control. So what's in our control, you know, like screen time before bed or just overdoing it with work. I love that you brought up that point about boundaries with work. I kind of wrote it down because I need it. (laughs) Especially for us like entrepreneurial moms, it's so easy to just be going all the time. It really has an impact on our mental health. So um, so many great tips there. And I'm so glad you had a good sleeper and I'm sure he will return to being a good sleeper. (laughs) So fingers crossed for you. What would you say were some big changes in your kind of um, self-care practices? Like, you know, you were meditating, you were eating well, you were moving your body. How did some of those things change as a mom? Because a lot of times moms will say to me, you know, I want to exercise. I don't have time. Um, I want to meditate. There's no way. Have you seen my morning? Like, it's insane. I want to cook healthy food, but I'm running out the door for pickup. And, you know, I just have to grab whatever, whatever. So what has worked for you and what would be some of your tips for those kind of challenges that many moms face? I think for me, it's about allowing them to be shorter and not beating myself up when I don't meet them. So meditation for me has been important. And I did the Transcendental Meditation course three years ago, no, maybe four years ago. And that's been really great for me. And ideally every day I do it. However, there are days where it doesn't get done. And even though it is meant to be 20 minutes, even if I do it for two minutes, that's fantastic. So I think, you know, if you've meditated before, if you're new to it, I think sometimes we think that 10 minutes or 20 minutes is the only way of doing it. But actually one minute of breathing is 
one of the most fantastic things that you can do for your body. And if it's while your little one is breastfeeding or while they're playing with their toys or lying, cuddling you, that's also a way of getting it done. I think we don't, it doesn't have to be by yourself in a room, you know, on a kind of meditation cushion or by a beach or whatever. It can be anywhere and at any time. So I think it's allowing those practices to be in your life. Um, exercise. I think it's about figuring out what works for you. So when I wasn't working so much and, you know, at home with my son more, I just really did lots of like YouTube stuff. So like a 15 minute yoga, YouTube class, you know, if he went down for a sleep or he was just in his little bouncer, I'd put it on um, and I'd keep it gentle. I'd keep it short. I'd keep it easy. um, And I would just kind of, do it in the moments that I could. And now that I'm working, for me, I just schedule it in through, you know, three sessions of whatever I want to do a week. It goes in my diary and it's non-negotiable. You know, I, if anyone else has got access to my diary, I'm like, don't put anything over the top of it because it is really important to me. Because I think often you can be like, oh, it's just yoga and it doesn't matter. I'll do that meeting or I'll do that, you know, work thing then. But actually, I think if it's a priority for you, you have to stick to it. I love that you say that. I'm just going to interrupt for one second because I saw this incredible study that said if you write down your plan for something like movement or any habit that you want to build, you are much more likely to follow through. Just the act of kind of writing it down with a pencil or in your whatever calendar versus saying, oh yeah, I'm going to work out three times this week or move three times this week. So I love that tip. And I love that no one's allowed to write over it. And it's like as important as, you know, your work commitment. Yeah, I think so. And look, that's not always easy. You know, I think I'm in a very privileged position where like I work for myself. The other thing is get up an hour earlier. And I think that like the power hour before your kids wake up, I know that there are times when I couldn't do that, i.e. when my son woke up sometimes at five, sometimes at seven, you never knew what was going to happen. But if you get to a point, you know, when they're a little bit older, where consistently they're waking up at a certain time, try and wake up that hour before because there is nothing better than being awake before your child in the morning you're not on the back foot which is a fantastic way to be you know you can shower by yourself without a child in the room or with you you know you can do your meditation you can exercise you know the amount you can get done when you're just by yourself is the most fantastic thing in the world so I think, you know, we're all really different and you might not be a morning person. So your power hour might be in the evening or at lunchtime or whenever that is. But can you figure out a way in your day where you have that time for you to do all the things that, you know, care for you and look after you? And I think, like you said, a lot of the time we're rushing and grabbing different things. So how can you combat that? Is it in the evenings that you cook something, you know, cook once, eat twice is a philosophy of mine that I've always talked about. Are you making that stoop, stoop? Stew, <laughs> soup, yeah. <laughs> soup or stew, um, you know, that you can then have over the next few days, you know, how are you making your life that little bit easier? And if you are grabbing things, because of course I don't cook every single meal, can you make the healthier choice? Like, is there a better choice that you can make in that moment? And can you, instead of eating it on the school run, you know, wait till you drop the kids off and you go back home and sit 
the table and you eat it mindfully and calmly. I think it's about assessing and doing the best that you can within your day and, you know, doing one step at a time. Maybe it's looking at your food you know, for a few weeks. And then after that, you can look at movement and then you can look at, you know, self-care techniques and things like that, rather than being like, I have to do it all every day. And, you know, only do things that take, you know, 10, 15 minutes when you're choosing recipes to make for the family, when you're choosing exercise techniques, keep it short, keep it simple um, and try and be consistent. Yeah, I love that you kind of um, brought that up about one thing at a time, maybe one thing per week. It's a little bit like Marie Kondo says to declutter your house. Don't try to do it all at once. Just do like skirts or pants, you know, and I think sometimes we want to do it all at once, but it gets so overwhelming. We just throw in the towels. So that's a great tip. And um, if you guys haven't seen Madeline's recipes, you need to check them out like now. You can stop the podcast and check them out. They're so beautiful. And I just, I would love to cook them and eat them five times. So love that tip about cook once, eat twice. Um, So just speaking of recipes, what has been your food philosophy? Do you have, are you a certain kind of, I don't know, like are you on a certain kind of dietary plan? How do you eat and, um, you know, how and why has that worked for you? I started off, so when I first got into wellness, the the cafe I worked in was a sort of paleo style cafe. It wouldn't call itself paleo, but it had that sort of principles of grass-fed meat and no grains. And I got fully into it. You know, I lived and breathed it. And then I moved back home and I told my mum all about it because I was living at home. And she said, yeah, but how about, you know, India and, you know, and Asia and all, all these different countries that eat grains and that's their main, you know, source of sustenance. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that is so true. And it started to open my eyes up and I guess then I started introducing grains back in and I started introducing, you know, different things I cut out like gluten and dairy because I thought that was the healthy option and, you know, they were all terrible. So I think I'm at the point now where nothing's off limits. I would probably limit something like sugar because in excess, I don't think it's very good for us, but in small indulgences and eaten mindfully and with love, I think it's a wonderful thing to have. So I would say I have a a whole food philosophy. So trying to cook from scratch, eating food that's grown from the ground, making plants priority. So as much as possible, you know, putting lots of vegetables um, on our plates and really knowing what's right for us, whether meat and fish is included, or if you feel strongly that that doesn't feel right for you, Um, you know, choosing different sources of protein. I think the other kind of dietary things I've mentioned before are like how you eat. So eating mindfully, chewing your food. I think also the window that you're eating. And I think there's so much interesting research done into fasting. Yes. We've spoken about it on my podcast, but, you know, really making sure that you're eating within a, say, 12-hour window, if even better, kind of 8 to 10-hour window. Is that something that you practice kind of daily? Very much so. And I sometimes don't, you know, I'm sometimes eating chocolate and popcorn into the night, but I never (laughs) Sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah, I never sleep as well and I never feel as good and my digestion doesn't feel as good. So, you know, I am not perfect in any way, shape or form and I never think perfection is something we should ever aim for. But I think those things are almost just as important as what we're eating. 
And I think eating in a calm, relaxed state, not eating throughout the night, you know, not eating first thing in the morning really does make a difference to our health. So I think for so long, I've kind of been like, this is the magic diet and you eat this, this and this. And I think there is no magic way to eat. And I think we shouldn't ever follow what someone else is necessarily telling us because we're so by individual and we have to figure that out. And I know that's a bit frustrating because we all want to figure out what, you know, that beautiful celebrity's eating so we can look like them. But actually we have to do the hard work and figure out what's right for us. And also tune in, like, you know, you might feel like eating salads in the summer is fantastic, but in the winter, that's just not sitting right and you need more warming foods. And I think that's really important, just daily, weekly, monthly checking in to like what's working for you. You know, what are you craving? What's that really telling you that you need in your life? Maybe emotionally or with food. So intuition probably is a big part of my health philosophy. Um, And diet, well, not maybe diet, but what I eat is based on intuition as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Whole real foods most of the time. Are there certain things that are kind of off limits for you because of the IBS or do you feel like the mindfulness and the, you know, like those things have impacted it so beneficially that you can really kind of eat whatever now? I think I probably am at that place now, which is a really nice place to be because I think having fear around food is never a good thing. Um, there are a few foods like raisins. Oh, <laughs> interesting are just, I don't know, if I eat too many, if there are a few in a muesli, fine, but like say like a energy nutty ball made with raisins for me really makes my stomach hurt. So, you know, again, and that's something we do in the Happy Gut Guide is figure out what those foods are for people because I think a lot of the time people have them, but it's it's often in excess, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not necessarily a tiny bit of that food. It's not an allergy, it's an intolerance. So it's often when you eat too much of one thing that then it becomes a bit of a problem for you. Yeah. And I think people often think it's always the common culprits, you know, like gluten, dairy, whatever, which can be, but really you are individual and it could be something totally out there. <laughs> What about alcohol, Madeline? Because you mentioned the alcohol sugars and I want to bring that up because I don't know if it's the case in London. I imagine it is. But, you know, there's this huge like pattern that I see with moms, even with myself. I'm actually doing a 90-day... I can't believe I'm saying it out loud. I haven't said it to anyone. I'm doing a 90-day no booze challenge that overlaps with Christmas and the holidays, which is completely insane. But... I really just felt the need for a break. Um, I was very mindful about my wine consumption, but it was definitely like, oh, I'm, you know, it's Thursday night and I've gone through this whole week as a mom. Yes, I've made it. Like, let me open some wine. And I see that with a lot of moms and I don't want to villainize wine because I think it's wonderful. Um, But I do feel like it sometimes becomes too much of a crutch. And I think those alcohol sugars, I'm just feeling like my sleep is so much better, my energy, my digestion, now that I'm taking this break. So how has alcohol kind of fit into your life and given the IBS and what you found in the early days? So just so um, people aware, alcohol... So when I was talking about alcohol sugars, I should have explained more. I wasn't talking about the sugars in alcohol. like Ah, right. You were talking about like some of the artificial... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The alcohol sugars are xylitol, sorbitol... Got it. Yes. 
those are often quite triggering. But yes, again, wine and alcohol can be quite triggering for people with IBS as well. So alcohol and me, ah, interesting subject. I started drinking very young. I hope there's not too many young people on this podcast. No, I did too. I was like, yeah, same. (laughs) Yeah, I was, um, I, you know, I grew up in London, which gave me a lot of freedom. And I, you know, I was in the clubs age 16 drinking. And I think I probably use alcohol as a sense of release. Um, You know, I had my parents divorced when I was young and one of my very close girlfriends sadly passed away when I was quite young. So I think alcohol for me was like, you know, get out of my head, you know, life wasn't something I could control so I could kind of escape. And I think I probably built up that relationship with alcohol, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. As I got into wellness, so kind of fast forward six, seven years after that, maybe less, um, I just started not drinking as much. And I am someone that doesn't drink very often now. And it isn't a health choice. I really enjoy like in a wedding, having a few glasses of wine, hitting the dance floor, but I don't necessarily feel the release I don't need the release from alcohol anymore. And I think that's probably just because I'm now at a place within myself where that, I don't feel that. But I think, you know, I might have a crutch where I probably might eat sugar more than I would drink wine. And I think we all have our different ways of doing things. But I'm probably a little bit unique in that way because I know that most people do have wine in the evenings. I think it's also a sense of, enjoyment. I don't think I enjoy alcohol in the way that other people do. But I think with it, it's about knowing why you're drinking. It's it's that connection. So I got taught this recently and I'm a little bit obsessed with it, but it's called like the 45 second connect. Mm-hmm. And it's like you close your eyes, you put your hands on your heart, you focus on your breath and you're like what do I need? Like, what do, what do I need right now? And it's often a quite a good thing to do. Like as you're reaching for your second glass of wine, like, or your third or your fourth or whatever, it's like, do I really need that glass of wine? Or am I actually trying to numb out the feeling of X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is. And I think it might be just pure enjoyment and fantastic, you know, dig in, but often it might be that you're escaping from something, you're, you know, you're trying to release stress in a different way. And maybe there's a better way of doing it that doesn't mean that you're drinking more and more. I don't know if I'm making sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a beautiful exercise. I think we are always seeking a reward that's beyond just the drink, Mm -hmm. whether it's connection socially or stress relief or escape. Yeah. So I think um, giving yourself a ritual or a tool to really check in with that is incredibly powerful. And it's been an interesting journey for me. So I'm always curious to hear about mums and wine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm not probably... No, I think it's a really fascinating journey because you did start drinking early. And I think it's a sign that things can change and your relationship with things and foods can change. And you you don't have to define yourself as the person that always has to have the glass of wine. I love that. So we could talk for days, but um, I want to ask you about this really interesting point that you brought up when we kind of exchanged notes earlier about the rejection that you faced when you tried to get your first book out. So you have several books. They're all about getting your glow. And I guess it wasn't so easy when you first launched. And I would just love for you to speak to that because I know there's lots of moms listening who are trying to get things off the ground and they're frustrated or just feel like it's never going to actually make it. So 
what happened and how did you get past it? Yeah, thank you so much for asking this question because probably, you know, if you might follow me or, you know, anyone else who's looks like they're bossing it and has lots of books, you know, you think that that was so easy. But when I started my blog, um, my now, who was at the time manager, said to me, where do you see yourself in five years time? Would you like to write a book? And I was like, me? No, that's what Jamie Oliver does. It's not what I do. But, you know, she got me to make <laughs> a book proposal, which we sent off and we went into meetings and, you know, you get that kind of, yeah, it sounds great, but we don't see health as being a big thing. You know, we're talking, you know, six years ago, this happened. Uh, you know, we don't think health is going to be a big thing. You know, put, I want you to put calories on your book and I felt that wasn't right. And there was a lot of kind of misunderstanding of the message I was trying to promote and people wanting to change me and people just outright saying, no, you know, I don't think that this is going to work. And that's not been the first time I've, it was probably the first time I've been rejected in my career, but it's not been the last. There's lots of small bits of rejection that happen along the way, whether it's brand deals not going through or, you know, certain things not going my way. And I think it's all part of life. And I think I'm very much, I'm a lot better with rejection than I was at the time. At that moment, I probably was like, oh, I'm not good enough. You know, this is not right. You know, I'm never going to do this. I'm not that kind of person. All these sorts of very negative thoughts going through our mind. But I think through, you know, failing multiple times, um, through different aspects of my career, I've got to the point where I trust more. And I think trust is really key. And it's it's easier said than done. You know, it's easy to say, I'll just trust in the process. It's very LA. Um, <laughs> but it is true. And I think you you just learn that along the way that actually, yes, this opportunity didn't work out, but another one will come about. And you will reflect. And you can strengthen that trust Go when you reflect back on your past, oh yeah, I didn't get that job, but then I ended up getting this, or I didn't end up doing that, but I ended up doing this. And I think that, you know, reflecting back on the times that things worked out, you know, when there was difficulty does help strengthen that trust. And I think we all have setbacks and thank God that we do. Cause imagine if everything was perfect and it all worked out, it would be boring and we wouldn't evolve to be compassionate, empathetic humans because we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to connect with it. We wouldn't connect with failure or not feeling good enough. So I think it's, it's really good in some ways that we fail and there's a fantastic podcast all about failure. Um, I don't know if it's big in the US, but it's by a very wonderful British journalist. It's called How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. And she interviews big, successful women um, on their failures and how they've shaped them. And if you're someone that maybe is not you know, doing well with a failure or struggling with it or fearful of a future failure, it's really worth a listen because it's really nice to see people that you potentially idolize or you look up to being human and overcoming, you know, things that they've struggled with. 
That's amazing. And I love that practical tip about looking back at instances where things really seemed like down in the dumps and how you kind of found a solution or another door opened, which I feel like always eventually does. And I'm definitely going to check out that book. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. Really powerful. Um, I want to close by asking you, what would you say is your biggest superpower? Smiling. Oh, yes. You're always smiling. It's true. In your pictures, on your book. And it really seems so genuine. Like, that's amazing. Do you feel like you just kind of smile all the time or you've trained yourself to? <laughs> well, my mom says I was born smiling. Oh, that's I, amazing. Yeah, I just came out and smiled. And she said that tourists used to take pictures of me. <laughs> such a fat and smiley baby. And um, I think that it is my superpower because it comes naturally to me. But my favorite thing, (laughs) which is such a funny thing to do, but I love when you hop on the tube. And I don't know if it's the same in New York, but people are miserable. And you just beam at someone and then they start smiling. And you just know that you've lifted their spirits for that moment and hopefully their day. And I always try and smile at strangers. And they may think I'm a little bit odd but I don't care because it does often put a smile on people's faces and I think that if we smile at each other more we would just generally be happier and feel more connected couldn't agree more you're spreading the joy you're spreading the light we're so grateful for you and your work Madeline Um, you can check out all of Madeline's books and her happy gut guide her podcast get your glow back all the links will be in the show notes I can't thank you enough for coming on sharing your wisdom so heartfelt so powerful Thanks so much, guys, for listening. And I will see you in the next episode of Mom Light. Be well. 